0: Today's reading is from the book of Joel. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abundant in steadfast love. And he relents over disasters. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent, and leaving a blessing behind him a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consec- consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bride, bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers, of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach by word among the nations. Why should, they, why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? It's a long one, <laughs> And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on, even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens, on the earth, blood and fire, and columns of smoke. The sun shall turn to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: The Book of the Prophet Joel. It's a short collection of prophetic poems that are both powerful and puzzling. Joel is unique among the prophets for a few reasons. First of all, there's no explicit indication of when this book was written. It's most likely the period of Ezra and Nehemiah after the return from the exile, because he mentions Jerusalem and the temple, but there doesn't seem to be any kings. Also unique is that Joel is clearly familiar with many other scriptural books. He alludes to or quotes from the prophets Isaiah, Amos, Zephaniah, Nahum, Obadiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, even the book of Exodus. And this is connected with the last unique feature, and that's that Joel never accuses Israel of any specific sin. So, like many of the other prophets, he announces that God's judgment is coming to confront Israel's sin, but he never says why. And that's most likely because Joel assumes that, like him, you have been reading the books of the prophets and so you already know all about Israel's rebellion. Now, altogether these three features help us understand this fascinating little book. That Joel is a biblical author who was himself immersed in earlier biblical writings. And his reflection on them helped him make sense of the tragedies of his day, but also they gave him hope for the future. Let's dive in and we'll see how this book works. In chapters 1 and 2 Joel focuses on the day of the Lord. This is a key theme in the prophets and it describes events in the past when God appeared in a powerful way to save his people or confront evil. Think about the plagues in the book of Exodus. But the prophets saw in these past events pointers to a future time when God would again confront evil among his people but also among the nations and bring salvation to the whole world. And so here in chapters 1 and 2 Joel has brought two parallel poems together that focus on this theme. So chapter 1 is about a past day of the Lord. He begins by announcing a recent disaster that a locust swarm has devastated Israel. And his description of the swarm recalls the day of the Lord against Egypt. Remember the eighth plague from Exodus chapter 10. Except this time the locusts are being sent against Israel. And so Joel calls on the elders and the priests to lead the people in repentance and prayer. And then Joel actually himself repents along with all of the priests. Chapter 2 comes alongside, and it has the same poetic design and flow of thought. So Joel announces another day of the Lord, except this time it's future, not past. It's an imminent disaster coming on Jerusalem. And he begins describing what seems like another wave of locusts, but he uses military and cosmic imagery. So the locusts become God's army, like cavalry and soldiers that are marching and destroying everything in their path. And the sun is darkened, and the earth quakes, and Joel says, the day of the Lord, it's dreadful who can endure it and so once more Joel calls on the people to pray and repent and he says how to rend your hearts, not your garments, and return to your God. In other words, Joel knows that repentance can be just a show that you put on to get out of trouble. And he says God's not interested in that. He wants genuine change for his people to stop their selfishness and evil. And then Joel says why Israel should repent, because God is gracious and compassionate, he's slow to anger, and he's full of love. He's quoting here from the book of Exodus about how God forgave Israel after they made the golden calf. And from that story Joel learned that God's mercy and love is more powerful than his wrath and judgment. And so he leads the priests in acts of repentance and prayer asking God to spare his people. Then right after these two poems the scene shifts and we have a short narrative about God's response to the repentance of Joel and the people. So, God was filled with passion for his land, and he had pity on his people. Then God says he's going to reverse the devastating effects of this day of the Lord and turn it from judgment into salvation. So, first he's going to defeat the threatening invaders, which were presumably the locusts, and he's going to turn them all away to their own ruin. Then he's going to restore the devastated land and bring it back to life, making it abundant once more. And finally, God says he's going to bring his divine presence among his people. It will become real and accessible to everyone. Now, up to this point, the poems tell a powerful story about Joel leading Israel to see how their sin led to disaster and divine judgment, and that with the God of mercy there is always hope. But Joel sees in all of these past events an image of the future day of the Lord. And so in the final section of the book, Joel writes three more poems that match God's three-part response. And he weaves together images from other prophetic books and expands it all into a vision of hope for all creation. So first, the hope of God's presence among his people gets expanded into a promise about how one day in the future, God's own spirit, his personal life presence, will fill not just the temple, but all of his people. And here Joel is drawing upon the promises of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel that God's spirit would come to transform and empower his people so that they can truly love and follow him. Joel then picks up God's promise that he'll confront the threatening invader. And Joel sees in these ravaging locusts a similarity to the arrogant, violent nations of his own day that ravage and oppress people. And so he draws upon the promises of Isaiah and Zephaniah and Ezekiel about the future day of the Lord, when God will confront evil among all the nations and turn their violence back on themselves, bringing justice to right all wrongs. And finally, Joel picks up the images of the land's restoration and he sees here a hope for the renewal of all creation. So he draws on the promises of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah that God's final day of justice will be followed by a restoration of the entire world, a new Eden, where God's presence in Jerusalem will flow out like a river and bring about cosmic renewal. And so Joel's poem ends with God's forgiveness and mercy opening up a whole new creation. And so this little book of Joel, it explores profound ideas about how human sin and failure wreak such devastating destruction in our world, about how God longs to show mercy to those who will just own up to their sin and confess it, and about how all of that leads us to hope that God will one day defeat evil in our world, but also inside of us, and bring his healing presence to make all things new. And that's what the book of Joel is all about.
2: took forever to draw that this week. Um, well when Frank told me that we were going to be doing the book of, uh, that we were going to be doing the Prophets, I was honestly really excited. Uh, I think that particularly the Minor Prophets are those books that kind of a lot of people just gloss over, we don't talk about it, we don't read them. Um, and there's so much depth and so much richness in these books, I was really excited. Um, but there's a reason why a lot of people don't read them. And so I was also a little nervous as we kind of talked about doing these books. Uh, and not only are they a little hard to access just because we're not kind of immersed in history, a lot, we're not immersed in kind of the language and kind of what's going on at the time. There's a lot of references to current events that are going on in the prophets that, without actually kind of living with it or at least studying it immensely, It's hard to pick up. But the other, and I think the bigger reason why we don't talk about the prophets much is because uh, they're hard to hear. Um, We need to remember that uh, none of these guys were super popular in their day. Uh, They weren't very liked. Um, They got kind of cast out of society quite a bit. Uh, Some of them were beat. Some of them were uh, kind of tortured, and, and, and some of them ultimately were killed. Uh, These weren't the kinds of people that you invited to parties. Um, I mean, can you imagine some of these people at a party? You're going around telling jokes, then all of a sudden Joel comes up and says, well, have you heard about the wine press of the dead? Huh? It's coming. And then silence. And then Jeremiah's in the corner just crying, you know, wanting to play, uh, you know, emo music and things like that. They're they're, they're just not fun to listen to, Uh, and and, and the the bigger thing is they were unpopular because they said things that were not popular. They said things that were really, really hard to hear. Uh, They they spoke truth in a time where people did not want to hear the truth. They confronted things that a lot of people held to be sacred at the time. And so when I heard we were going to be talking about the prophets, one of the things that it made me realize is that the same things that made them unpopular then are going to be unpopular now. That the prophets, what makes them so challenging is that they push on what a lot of us and a lot of our world considers to be sacred. And because of that, I think it's going to be really easy as we listen to these sermons and as we dive into these prophets to write them off. For one, we might want to write them off just because they're not easy to understand. And we might say, well, that was then. They were talking about that then. And now because of Jesus, things are different now. So we don't really have to pay attention to them. Hopefully that's not what you hear from us. Um, But the other reason we might push them off is because they might challenge us in ways that we just quite frankly don't want to be challenged in. Um, And I can understand that too. But the thing that I want to remind us of as we get into this book, because once again, in this book, as in any other book, it's going to push on things that many of us hold to be sacred, or at least many of us in the culture would hold to be sacred, is we have to remember why they did what they did. Because the prophets didn't do this stuff because they wanted to be unpopular. I mean, Jeremiah wrote, and there's moments in Jeremiah's writings where he just weeps where he actually longs for the ability to not speak on God's behalf because of what it does to him. He actually, Jeremiah 20, if you want to read it later, talks all about this reality where Jeremiah just wishes he could stay silent because of all the devastation it's done in his own personal life because he speaks on behalf of God. They didn't want to do this. They didn't have like a vendetta against Israel or Judah or anything like that. There was something deeper driving them, and I want us to remember that as we hear this message and as we hear all these messages on the prophets. That what drove them was this deep belief in the hope of God's promise. They deeply believed in a God of love. And what they longed more than anything for was for the nation of Israel, for those who read their words, to experience the life-giving reality of true love real repentance and that's something that i hope we hear in the midst of all of this stuff not just today's message but moving forward that that as hard and as harsh sometimes as the prophets might seem and be the deeper hope the deeper thing they're calling us to is the life that we can find through repentance and the hope that we have in god's loving promises so I want us to remember that as we walk through this today, that the point of the prophets is not to scorn us, to shame us, to make us feel guilty, to make us feel bad, but to point us to true and lasting hope. With that, I want to kind of take just a little bit of time. We don't need to rehash everything that Tim Mackey did in... in uh, Uh, the video that we just watched, but I want to just point out a little bit about the nature of the day of the Lord, try to bring that into full scope of what kind of what it looks like now. So we're going to look at the first part of the book and the last part of the book, and then I really want to spend a lot of time talking about the middle part of the book, the implications of the middle, Um, because there's something about the middle that changes it. And really what what we're wanting, what I'm wanting us to kind of wrestle with is This nature of the day of the Lord, that it's either really good, bad news for people, it's either really terrible news for people, or it's really, really good news. And there's something that separates those two. There's something that makes the difference between this being either really, really bad news or really, really good news. And I don't want any of us to walk away uncertain as to what the difference is. But first, we need to look at what uh, the bad news is and what the good news is. So... Let's look first at the bad news of the day of the Lord. First is that what the day of the Lord means is that God will judge idolaters. And I know idolaters seems like a really biblical word that what we might seem is foreign to us. And I think a lot of us feel that way because we're not worshiping sticks or stones or, or statues or anything like that. And because of that, we think, well, we don't really live in a world that struggles with idolatry. But the truth is, idolatry is just anything we place our hope in, we're trying to make do what only God can do. And because of that, we're living in a world of idolatry. John Calvin describes the human heart as a factory for idols. So the fact that idol- idolaters is not an ancient term, it's irrelevant, it's a modern term. It's a, it's a constantly present term. And what the day of the Lord means is that God will bring judgment to those who choose to live in idolatry. Joel chapter 1, verse 4 starts with What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. He's imagining this idea of these locusts coming in and destroying all of the crops and everything that they have. And as it says, everything gets eaten. In verse 5, it says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Later in chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them. But behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. He describes this as this, basically there's this beautiful reality, this paradise. And what the day of the Lord means is that all of it's going to be destroyed. All of it will be eaten up. All of it will be consumed in the fire. I couldn't help but thinking of the actual fires in California as we see this all over the news. You know, there's, a, there's an actual town called Paradise that is being consumed by the fires now. I remember uh, Lauren and I, we took our, our kids camping in Malibu, uh, not on the beach, but like kind of back in the mountains behind Malibu. And I mean, if you've been over there, it's beautiful. It's like the Garden of Eden, or at least what I imagine the Garden of Eden being like. And we were there, now the camping trick didn't end well because a, a tarantula walked through the middle of our campsite and we came home and we sold all of our camping gear. And, <laughs> but apart from that moment, it was really—I mean, it's beautiful—and we're looking at these, this video of literally that same spot that we were at, just being ravished by fire. And that's the image of what it is: before the fires is, is Eden, and after it's is this desolate wilderness. Joel is speaking in no uncertain tor- terms of the bad news and destruction that will come from the judgment on the day of the Lord. But it's not just that they're going to—that ju- that the Lord will judge kind of those who have given their life and devoted their lives to idolatry, but he'll actually destroy the idols themselves, the very things that people have put their hope in. In Joel 1, 8 through 12, it says this, "'Laments like a virgin wearing sackcloth "'for the bridegroom of her youth. "'The grain offering and the drink offering "'are cut off from the house of the Lord. "'The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. "'The fields are destroyed, the grounds mourn, "'because the grain is destroyed.'" The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. See, not only are, 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 are the people judged, but, but the idols that have kept the people captive are judged as well, are consumed. These things that people have placed their hope in, their comfort in, their security in are all gone in the day of the Lord, in this judgment that comes according to Joel. If we were to read it today and think of it today, it would be him going through and saying, God will strip away all the oil that we have that fuels literally our life. The markets, the education system, the safety of our neighborhoods, all of it's going to be gone. The imports and exports that makes us run everything gone. In the day of the Lord, He will strip away all the things we falsely place our hope in. And one of the things, and this is helpful in understanding both the prophets, not not just this book, but all the prophets, is when they're talking, when they're talking about things that are kind of happening in the future, there's always kind of two elements of what they're doing. So this is just kind of an interpretive uh, kind of help for us as we look at this is there's uh, to use a term we might have heard before there's an already not yet reality to what the prophets are talking about so there is this future day of the lord that that Joel is referring to but he's also talking about this as though it's happening now so when we look at this world that we're living in and we understand this here not only are we living in the brokenness and evil surrounding us but we're actually living in the judgment as well That the day of the Lord is kind of already and not yet happened. And we're living under the weight of both evil and the judgment of evil. And so when we see these things happening around us, and that doesn't mean that we should look at every single thing and say, well, that's God's judgment. It's not really for us to say. But knowing that we live in this world where God is constantly confronting evil and judging evil, we're living under the weight of all of this. And that's the bad news. And if you think that seems really heavy and dark, it's because it's really heavy and dark. Joel is not mincing words about this. But there is good news. The day of the Lord is not just a day of judgment, according to Joel, but a day of salvation. A day of incredibly good news for those who have called upon his name. So let's look at the nature of the good news of the day of the Lord as well. So I want to make sure we really kind of get what Joel is bringing out here. First is that God will put his spirit in his people and they will see his judgment clearly. In Joel 2, 28 through 32, this is something that was read earlier, but I'll read it again. It says this, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God will put his spirit in his people. And if that sounds familiar, it should. If you remember in the book of Acts, God's spirit actually comes down at Pentecost to dwell in his people. We are living in a world in which God dwells in his people. Like I said, there's a part of this in which this is an already fulfilled promise. God has placed his spirit amongst his people. And we see... A lot of the implications of that fleshed out in the other prophets. What Joel focuses in on here is what that does to our vision. What that does for us, our ability to see the world clearly. And I think really what he's talking about is that we will be able to see, because of God's spirit, evil clearly. It talks about the sun being turned to darkness and the moon to blood, which is a really a much cooler way of talking about a solar and a lunar eclipse. And that doesn't mean that every time a solar eclipse comes or a lunar eclipse comes, that means the end of the world is at hand. I think what this means is that we, because of God's Spirit dwelling within us, we will see evil, we will see judgment, we will see the reality of how this world is as clearly as we would see a solar eclipse and a lunar eclipse. It will be as obvious as the sun turning dark and the moon turning red. That the reality of God's spirit dwelling in his people is that we will have the vision to see the world as it truly is and not be duped by it. So that's the first aspect of the good news of the day of the Lord. That what was once distant what was once separated because of sin now God will actually become and dwell within his people. And one of those one of that, like some of the outgrowth of that will be we'll be able to actually see clearly the world as it truly is. The second thing that we see Joel talk about is that God will judge the nations. And you might be wondering how that's good news, and I'll get to that in just a second, but let me read where I'm getting this from just so you don't feel like I'm making it up. Joel 3, verse 9 Starting in verse 9, it says, Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Just a real quick note about that. Joel is actually reversing something that both Isaiah and Micah have said earlier in that, where their vision of kind of the restoration of Eden is that the swords would be turned plowshares Spears and pruning into pruning hooks, and he's saying, No, you're gonna have to do the opposite for the mighty day of the Lord. It's really pretty incredible poetry there. Verse eleven he says, Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. God will judge the nations, and this is good news. And this is good news because in the end, nations do evil things and leave behind them a wake of destruction. You know, it's interesting. I think partly because we live in such an individualistic world, we we don't think of the reality of corporate evil often. We think of individual evil, and the Bible talks quite a bit about individual evil, but we don't think of, of kind of the collective evil that is judged. But the Bible does talk about But Bi- The Bible sees both as real and both as something that God will have to judge and deal with. That there is a collective reality just as much as there is an individual reality, and both in the end, on the day of the Lord, will be judged. And that doesn't mean that everything that nations do is wrong, or that there's no good that comes from them, but there's an evil that can happen as a result of these mighty nations coming up. The archetype that is used in the prophets is the nation of Babylon. Sean talked about this last week, um, talked about this, how Babylon is both a real nation, which the nation of Israel and Judah dealt with, but also becomes this kind of archetypical reality of these types of nations who in the end will be judged. And this is the Babylonian Babylonian archetype. They praised the power of their military. They reveled in their wealth. They only cared about Babylon. They were a Babylon-first nation. And they used everything that they had to serve their best interests. They used everything that they had to push away anything that doesn't work towards their advantage and serve their best interests. They're willing to sacrifice, oppress, and destroy the families and children of other nations for the sake of whatever made them better. And what we see here is that God is going to judge those nations and is currently judging those nations. It's interesting because Babylon doesn't exist anymore. The reason why we only talk about it as an archetype is because Babylon doesn't exist. Persia, who wiped out Babylon, doesn't exist anymore. The nation of Greece, or the empire of Greece under Alexander, which wiped out Persia, doesn't exist anymore. The Roman Empire, which overtook Alexander's Greece, doesn't exist anymore. All of these nations that have come up and gone up and raised up and done these evil and terrible things to serve their best interests don't exist anymore because God has judged them. In a more modern reality, I mean, this is where you see the the Nazi Germany rise up, which very much so fits this reality. And they don't exist anymore. They are judged. We need to see that there is this reality in this over... Overwhelming evidence that the nations who ultimately use their power for the sake of building their own empire, for the sake, at the kind of expense of the vulnerable, at the expense of the oppressed, ultimately are judged by God. Oftentimes by turning their own wealth, their own kind of infighting, own all that stuff in on itself. The nations will be judged. They'll be judged for the evil against the unwanted children, whether it's unwanted children in the womb. At the borders or in their slums, God will judge these nations for the evil they have inflicted upon the vulnerable of the world, and this is good news. But I realize that it's hard for us to hear this as good news. One of the things that has been really helpful to me as I study the Scripture, kind of having grown up here, I grew up you know three or four miles from here, um, is is uh, this idea that the Bible was written by oppressed people, by kind of minority, kind of outside of the fold people, to oppressed people. And because of that, I realize that I don't really fit in that. I am not that. And that does not mean that the Bible is not good news for me or for us, but it does mean that we relate to this differently, and we have to have the humility to understand that even though this might not seem like good news to us because we might be Babylon. It is good news for those whom God has called, for those whom have, have suffered under deep weights of evil and brokenness in this world. And we need to have the humility to see that, that the judgment of the nations is in fact good news. The third thing we see as to why This is good news. You know, we see that God has put His Spirit in His people. God will put His Spirit in His people. God will judge the nations. The last is that He will restore Eden. We read Joel 3.18. It says, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. This is the beauty of the kingdom. This is is what ultimately he's pointing us to. That all of these things that have been devastated, all of this carnage that has happened as a result of both evil and the judgment of evil will one day be restored. And all of this will be returned to what it used to be. I think my favorite way of uh, this has been depicted is right at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. When all of them get to enter into, uh, kind of through the gate, and enter into this kind of true Narnia, as they call it. And they come in, and they start to look, and they see all things that they recognize, mountains and trees, but things are greener than they've ever seen before, and mountains are bigger than they've ever seen before, and they run, (coughs) and they can't stop running. And no matter how hard they try to feel weariness, they can't feel weary. No matter how hard they try to feel sadness, they can't feel sad. Sad. And they go and it says they go further up and further in and the more and more they come into this, they realize that this is the true real world that they've always longed for, that they've always seen and that they dwelled in this world filled with shadows before. I think that's what this means. That's what this hope is, is that we're living in what C.S. Lewis calls in that the shadow lands, that we get images, we get a glimpse of what this looks like, but we've never fully experienced life and world the way it was ever meant to be. And in this we get to. We get to live in a world where government serves the best interest of all people. Imagine that. People people and soil and, and all of the various aspects of creation work together, not work against each other. Sin no longer tears apart relationships. Imagine what it would be like to not be afraid of the people that you feel are closest to you are are not just lying to you. The people at work aren't stabbing you in the back and going behind you. Imagine what that would feel like to know that your kids are just being honest with you. Imagine what it would feel like to live in a world where you weren't afraid of being betrayed because sin no longer had a hold on the way we interact with one another. Imagine a world of no more sickness. Every time... Uh, winter comes, I love, like, the cold weather, but I know that sickness comes with that. If you can't tell, I'm a little sick. It's because, like, for example, I think two weeks ago, my three-year-old Wesley was licking the um, shopping cart at Target, just back and forth over and over again. And so because of things like that, I will be sick for the next four months. So I apologize. Imagine that. No more of that. Even if they lick shopping carts, they can't get sick. There'll be shopping carts for days. They can lick all of them. It'll be a land of only good news. Eden will be restored. This is this to me is so beautiful. To imagine a world like that. And what's beautiful about it is that this is a promise that God says will be fulfilled. That this is what He is saving us into. And just as before, there's also an already aspect of this. This is, what I get really excited about is that the the only way that the world is going to kind of even begin to see this is through the way the church works. When the church works best, it looks like that. And it's so exciting when I get to see that happening here. So that's, we've looked at the bad news, and we've looked at the good news. The bad news is really, really bad news. And the good news is really, really good news. So, we have to ask the question then, what is it that makes the difference? And so I think we're going to put this up here. The difference between the good news and the bad news is true repentance. And that might seem like you were expecting something more different or more profound but as it turns out the message of Joel is the same message of the rest of the Bible that for salvation for all of these things to be true we need to truly repent I want to read this Uh, it was read earlier but um, comes back to this Joel 2 12 and 13 it says yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Yet even now, return to me with all your heart. I can hear the mourning and anxiousness in Joel's voice as he says this. Remember, this isn't, Joel is not one of the first prophets. He's one of the last prophets. And he's recounting a message that was told from Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Amos, Hosea, all of these people have said the same thing. They have painted this incredible picture of the beauty of what life will come through redemption of what it would be like, the healing, the restoration, the goodness of God in the midst of all this, the goddess, a God of steadfast love and mercy. They've painted this picture, yet even then, they ignored it. Joel is having to say the same thing over and over and over again, and you can hear it in the way he talks about it, that there's a sadness in it all, a longing for it to be true. Because he looked around him, and they were willing to go through the motions of repentance. If, in fact, this is when he wrote it, and I, and I agree with Tim Mackey that Joel was writing later, probably after they have returned from exile and were living back in Israel at the time, they were going to the temple, they were making sacrifices, they were doing the things that they were supposed to be doing, and Joel looked around and said, you're doing all of these things, but you have not given your hearts, you have rendered your garments but not your hearts. You've come so close, but you've not come all the way. C.S. Lewis wrote another book called The Great Divorce. Um, And it's really, it's it's an incredible book. It's a weird book. If you've never read it, I'll warn you, it's a weird book, even for C.S. Lewis. Um, And it's basically this, this book I Kind of about the nature of repentance. What does it take for a person to truly repent? And, and more so, what does it take for somebody be, to be actually separated from God? Um, it starts with these people living in what he calls a gray town, which sometimes seems to me like a nice idea. Um, but it's raining all the time. It's even raining inside. Everybody's dreary. Everybody's miserable. Everybody's lonely. And this bus shows up, and, and they say, okay, well, if you can wait and get on the bus, we'll take you to somewhere else. And there's a bunch of people in line, and the majority of the people in line get frustrated and leave before the bus even takes off, which I think is yeah, so it's just being funny. Um, and they get in, and it escapes. And ultimately, this bus takes them to what kind of over through the clouds into this, like, beautiful dawn sky and to what he calls the foothills of heaven. And it's basically these conversations. And no, this is not like good theology or anything like that. This is imaginative speculation and stuff like that. But he's setting up a scenario in which people are talking to point out the reality of how close people can come to salvation. How close people can come to repentance and then turn away. And then turn back. Over and over again, these different people will come forward and look and peer into them. And and what's interesting is they get closer and all, they become more like ghosts. And these blades of grass that are beautiful and and these mountains and fields and all that stuff, they step on them and it's painful to them. And they're assured that as long as they kind of enter into this and truly repent that they'll kind of be made whole and all of that stuff. But most of them don't actually make it in. Most of them turn away for various reasons. And he looks at this and, and, and what he's kind of ultimately saying is, It's amazing how people can come so close that they can actually stand at the foothills of heaven and still turn back because they're willing to give everything but truly repent. He says this, is one of the lines, and I I think it's so incredible. He says, There have been men before who got so interested in proving the existence of God that they came to care nothing for God himself, as if the good Lord had nothing to do but to exist. There have been some... Who were so preoccupied with spreading Christianity that they never gave a thought to Christ. And I think that this this is the thing that we need to wrestle with with the book of Joel. This is the deep and heavy truth that we have to confront. That we can get so close to this and not truly repent. I think that's a terrifying reality if I'm being honest. And it's not just the book of Joel. Jesus, in in the book of Matthew, talks about this, how people will come and stand before the judgment seat and say, I cast out demons in your name. I healed in your name. I did all of these things in your name. And he will look at them and says, I do not know you. And the difference is true repentance. That we can come so close and never really give him our hearts. I think this is something that we have to wrestle with. That many of us, some of us here, not many of us, hopefully not many of us, are willing to give our time, our money, our voices, our retweets and likes, our Sundays and our Wednesdays, are willing to give everything but our hearts. And if in the end, that's what, the, that's what we've done, we've given everything, we've rendered our garments, we've brought our sacrifices, we've showed up, gave our money, we gave our time, we gave all of these things, but never gave God our hearts, then in the end, God will say, I did not know you. Because that's the difference between it being really, really bad news and really, really good news. I think one of the ways that we can know this is we ask ourselves the question, what is it that we find our identity in? If we want to know, well, this seems compelling, we should think about this. We should really, I want to truly repent, but what does it mean to truly repent? Do I even need to truly repent? We have to ask these questions. Well, what is our identity in? What things in our life, if they were taken away, would mean that we were just wiped out and miserable? Do we ever get incredibly angry over something that if we stepped away, realized we shouldn't really be all that angry about? Do we find our hope in things? Do we find ourselves longing for certain things? Not for God, not for Christ. Because that's how we can tell where we need to truly repent. Because think about it. Like, we know what it's like to not be apologized to, even though somebody says they're sorry. If you have kids, you really know this. Like, the other week, like, we had to tell our kids hey, you need to apologize for deconstructing our play set and throwing a slide at the other person. Like, that's a real thing that happened. They took apart the entire play set and then threw it at each other. (coughs) And this happens, and they come over and say, sorry, and they run away. Like, that doesn't work. That's not fixing anything. And we're annoyed by that. that. Like, there are a few things that make me more frustrated as a parent than seeing something like that happens. But we need to know that, like, when we do that to God, it's the same thing. When there's not a legitimate repentance for what's going on, God hears it the same way. It just doesn't work. It's not being sorry. It's not truly turning around And that is what God is calling us to. True repentance means that our hope is not in a blue wave or in a conservative Supreme Court justice appointment. It's in neither, neither of those things. It means that it's not in a bull market or a bear market. It's not in our zip code or how pinnable our living room is. It's not in the quality of our kids' education it's not in the boat we're looking forward to buying in retirement. It's not in our wealth, or in, and it's not in our beauty. It's not in our nation or our party. It's not in our career or education. It's not in any of those things. True repentance means that our hope is in the Lord. And we are willing to lose all of those things for the sake of following Him. It's interesting. We talk about grace, and, and, and I hope you hear this, that grace is something that God gives freely. God gives it freely. We, have to, we don't have to do anything to earn God's love or make ourselves more likable, more lovable, or more redeemable. But there's this other side that I think we, we fear to talk about. That yes, God's grace is free, but it costs us everything. True repentance costs us everything. And if we are not willing to do that when the locusts come... We will be consumed with everybody else. And if that seems terrifying, it's because it is. So as we continue, I'm going to ask the band to come forward. I want to give us just time to sit in this. I want to give us some time before we sing, before we take communion. Uh, The band is going to play. You don't have to get up. I'm not going to make you dance or anything like that. Um, Praise God. I'm not going to make anybody do anything like that. I just want you to sit where you are. If you're willing to bow your head, if you're willing to do that, if not, just, I want you to ask God this question, is there anything in my life that's keeping me from you? Is there anything in my life that I need to truly repent of? You might have hated this message, and that's fine, but I want you to ask this question. Ask God this honest question. Is there anything in my life keeping me from you? Let's do that, and then I'll continue to to come out and and talk about how we're going to take communion. So let's do that.